Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, and to episode 71 of Abstract, colon, the future of science. This is the only episode, episode 71. There will not be another episode 71, so enjoy this while it lasts. I'm here joined by Rahul Chandan. He's going to take us through a wild world of game theory. So, Rahul, it's great to have you. Take it away. Hi, Jeremy. Yeah, my name is Rahul. I'm a fifth-year PhD student in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at UC Santa Barbara. And I previously completed my bachelor's at the University of Toronto through the engineering science program in the electrical and computer engineering option. My research work combines game theory and optimization in order to study and combat the so-called tragedy of the commons in multi-agent systems. My research interests are motivated by a desire to understand complex biological, social, and technological systems composed of relatively simple agents and to explore interesting applications of mathematics. In my spare time, I enjoy biking in the hills of Santa Barbara, cooking new and challenging dishes, and watching very terrible Netflix movies with my friends. <laughs> Sounds like a great life. Honestly, you do it. <laughs> yeah. It's actually great to have another guest from UCSB on the show. Uh, UCSB is the home of our good friends Lauren Ortoski and Peyton Small from episode 64, the creators of Access Grads, which is this unique graduate mentorship program. So I love the idea of having you on the show today to talk about multi-agent systems. Every time I sit down to record another episode of Abstract, I'm sitting across from another human being and we're spreading knowledge, communicating science and acting synergistically. Rahul, we are ourselves a multi-agent system. Yeah, that's very true. So I want to keep that in mind. Both myself and you and the listener right now are a three-way multi-agent system. That's a perfect way to put it, yeah. I'm really excited to dive deep into this concept, and I just want to go in there right away. Where do we see multi-agent systems in the real world? Of course, the podcast is one example. And do the agents here have to be conscious in order for them to be agents? Yeah, so, so that's a very good question off the bat. So multi-agent systems are seen, as you said, all around the world. And um, we can see them in biological, technological, and social systems. So... In biology, we see the examples of colonies of bees and ants that cooperate in order to complete very complex tasks, but each individual is extremely simple in, in terms of its decision-making and in terms of its just of its structure. In socio-technological systems, so systems that combine social and technological aspects, we see multi-agent systems emerging, especially in the modern day. And so if you imagine drivers on transportation networks, what we will have is this tension between system designers who will toll or add other carpool lanes to, to roads in order to minimize congestion on roads. Mm -hmm. In other cases, you could have advertising agencies that are bidding for impression slots on social media. And in the extreme case of just technological systems, we have examples of flocks of drones that will be used to complete various tasks like mm -hmm. surveying forest fires to um, building complex buildings on Mars and such in the future. And so there's there's a vast array, as you can imagine, and they span systems in nature to systems completely engineered by humans. 
Very cool. So thinking about these different kinds of systems, though, biological, technological, social, there are different levels of consciousness that these agents have. Presumably, uh, drones aren't conscious in the same way that humans are conscious. Oh, for sure. Yes. Um, varying levels of intelligence. And I mean, with technological systems, we ascribe the intelligence to the agents, whereas with biological systems, like their consciousness is something that, I mean, we don't even really have access to. This is something that's been been designed evolutionarily, like through natural selection. And so, yeah, you're very right. I mean, the the level of consciousness, so to speak, is variable. In the study that we pursue, we model agents as sort of their consciousness is sort of this assumption that they just are fully rational and they always are acting in their own self-interest. And so what we'll do is we'll associate some local utility function to each of the agents. And these agents are just completely obsessed with optimizing their own local utility function, which is independent of sort of this global social objective. So broadly, the utility function is a tool to analyze human behavior. According to Investopedia in economics, the utility function measures the welfare or satisfaction of a consumer. So if we consider bees, our model for bees would be perhaps bees are more aligned with the, the global objective of like the survival of the colony and like the reproduction of the queen and feeding queen and the babies of the colony. But still, all that they observe, they have to act with their own local information. They can't observe more than what is in their own sensory environment. And similarly, like when we consider things like drones or humans, they always act with the information that they observe and they optimize a function that is local to them. So these, these functions could be quite different, but the, the important thing to remember is that they're acting sort of independently without this sort of like hive mind, no pun intended. <laughs> Now that I'm, I'm realizing we've begun to dive quite deep into this idea of functions describing the way these agents interact, I think we should actually take a quick step back here. Because sure. you said that we're imagining that all the agents here are rational actors. Exactly. I've, I've heard of rational actors in the context of, of economics, and yep. this is the discipline that game theory is actually rooted in. So could you maybe just explain what game theory is and how your research is couched within it? Sure, yeah. Okay, so yeah, so game theory, as you mentioned, it was sort of conceived in the, the environment of economics. And it was really developed in order to study microeconomics or how microeconomics connects to macroeconomics. How does, how does like local behavior between individual decision makers, how does that impact macro behavior of a system? So, you know, individuals trading money for goods, how does that impact sort of the supply and demand curve like overall? We can't model human behavior exactly, so we have to do sort of mm -hmm. assumptions. And forget human behavior, even B behavior is extremely difficult to model um, using mathematics. So, you know, in order to make anything tractable, you have to make models. And the models that we consider in game theory are very simplistic, but they do a good job at that macro level. That's why game theory has been so successful, is even though the model for individual behavior is fairly oversimplified, the tractability and the kind of the ability to describe the macro behavior allows us to get away with these simple models. Interesting. So even though we're oversimplifying and maybe missing something at the at the fundamental like single unit level, right? All of that averages out in a sense, and we're able to describe the large scale behavior. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. It sort of averages out. There's like this global trend, and even though there may be individual actors that deviate from our model, the 
macro level behavior is still somewhat similar, or at least can be used yeah. to model complex behaviors that we've seen in the real world. So things like why the stock market works the way it does, or why do e-colonies work the way they do? And yeah, and so yeah. this is way- it's re- really interesting. I'm thinking about like the role of structure in these different kind of multi-agent systems, because the stock market has a very different structure than a road system, which is a very different structure than the way that drones interact in a swarm. Yep. Shout out episode 39, Ali Safai. Uh, <laughs> so how do we characterize this thing that I'm getting at here, which I'm calling structure, maybe it has a different word. Sure. How do we actually define that in the case of a multi-agent system? And what are the impacts of it? Yeah, of course. So there's this concept of equilibrium, and maybe you've heard the term Nash equilibrium from like A Beautiful Mind or other movies that have kind of made their way into this pop culture. I've heard of Nash equilibrium, but what is it? A Nash equilibrium is basically a steady state within this complex network of individual decision makers. Essentially, it's a system outcome or a joint action of the agents where no one agent would unilaterally deviate from their chosen action. So the idea is we're at some outcome, right? Everyone's made some level of action. They've committed to an action. And now if they were to make a different choice than what they've chosen currently, they could not improve their local utility function. Can we make this a little bit more concrete? Yeah, we're yeah. talking about like decision making here and like utility functions, but yeah. Yeah, let's think about it in an actual concrete example. Let's take the example of a transportation network, like humans on, like driving on the road, right? Yeah. So every day you drive from point A to point B, say from home to work, right? And everyone makes their own action. You know, maybe someone goes on the highway, maybe someone takes a neighborhood route. And what you've determined is every day you go on this route and it takes you, say, an hour. If you were to deviate to a different route, maybe it would take you an hour and 10 minutes. And so if everyone is optimizing their own travel time, so everyone wants to minimize travel time, and everyone has sort of minimized their travel time with respect to everyone else's action, then they would not want to deviate to a different route because it would take them longer. Okay. Yeah. So there are so many agents in, in this system of roads. Yeah. It feels like it's actually impossible to really ever figure out what the optimal route is for me because so many factors are always changing. Like, right. Does a large enough population of agents ever reach Nash equilibrium in reality? So, yeah, that's a very good question. So there's various ways to answer that question, right? People have looked at whether Nash equilibria are computationally tractable. And what that means is could, if I were given like a description of a system, could I, using some level of computer program, solve for a Nash equilibrium through, Mm -hmm. you know, simulation or whatever. And what they've determined is that if a system gets large enough, then it would actually take the age of the universe to compute a Nash (laughs) equilibrium. And so if we, if we, if we consider humans on the transportation network to be an algorithm, right? In some sense it is, right? If we were to model like every human's decision-making system and then consider that to be a computer, right? So all the humans' brains collectively are a computer and they're computing a Nash equilibrium of the road network. Uh-huh. It could be that it would take the age of the universe to solve it. And so what that means is it kind of rules out the possibility that you could compute Nash equilibrium. And so the people have considered sort of generalizations of equilibria that are more tractable. But yeah, <laughs> so like, sad. it's a very good question. So sad because I mean, like even a single human life yeah. is 
let's say not even a single human life. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not like driving before I'm 15 or 16 years yeah. old. So maybe for your for your working life, when you're commuting regularly, this there's maybe 40 years where you're doing that. If it takes almost 14 billion years or more as the life of the universe to yeah. actually figure out the Nash equilibrium, we're so screwed. <laughs> I mean, in terms of actually I mean, getting there, it's it's actually there's like various ways to yeah continue this conversation like different threads so when people say things like nash equilibrium could take the age of the universe to compute what they do is they seek out kind of like a great game structure so like a structure of the multi-agent system that is kind of poorly aligned with the objective of computing a nash equilibrium this is sort of like this computer science side to this coin essentially they could draw out a very specific example based on their own intuition of a system that would be very difficult to solve equilibrium for. That doesn't mean, though, that every possible multi-agent system has those poor guarantees of the computability of a Nash equilibrium. People are currently studying this for various game theoretic models, but basically people are studying, in the average case, what is the computational tractability of Nash equilibria. And so it could be that even though in the worst case, it takes the age of the universe, it could be that in the vast majority of examples that Nash equilibria are actually very easy to solve. And so there's that side of the coin where it need not be that Nash equilibria are actually hard to solve. But then at the same time, even though we consider Nash equilibrium as the solution concept, it doesn't mean that if we can't get to Nash equilibrium, that things aren't good. Is a Nash equilibrium just like always the goal for any multi-agent system to achieve? Oh, well, in, from the game theoretic standpoint, that's usually the solution concept people consider because it's sort of this nice, you know, steady state. It's like a fair state, right? Everyone is sort of satisfied with their choice in the system. But so like socialism in an ideal <laughs> Kind of, <world>. yes. <laughs> like is socialism like a Nash equilibrium, like universal basic income? <laughs> <laughs> I would say Nash equilibrium is more aligned with capitalism, but... Uh, oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Think about economics and where economists usually think. I would say that even though it's set in fairness, the fairness is also sort of not really aligned with social welfare. And that's like something that my research, this is a good segue, actually. Sure. Nash equilibria don't often align well with social objectives. So if you were to consider something like drivers minimizing their own travel times on road networks, the emergent Nash equilibria in that kind of system has been shown in like extremely simple examples to provide really, really poor average case travel time. So even though everyone's minimizing their own travel time on the road, there are emergent outcomes where everyone is happy with their choice with respect to everyone else's choices. But the total travel time across everyone in the system is much, much longer than what could be achieved if you were to do some so-called optimal routing. If, you know, there was like a dictator. Oh, yeah, I yeah. see. So there's like either we're minimizing the time on the road or we're maximizing like well-being. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, oh, the well-being. but they're not happy at the same time. Exactly. Okay. So if you were truly socialist, right, if you wanted the best, best thing for the system, what you'd do is you'd actually impose some sort of dictatorial routing where you would compute the routing centrally and then you would kind of announce to everyone. This is sort of coming to being through Google Maps and things like that. That's sort of coming okay. out of the woodwork. If we can impose a routing strategy, then we can actually improve the emergent outcomes. So is there only ever like one specific Nash equilibrium for a given system? So that, that's a very good question. I think, yeah, this is a good time to stop and think about maybe an example of a multi-agent system and go back to this the, the road traffic network and 
And what we'll see is that there actually are multiple Nash equilibria that can emerge within a given system. Cool. So in other words, there's sort of a multiplicity of solutions of equilibria in a multi-agent system. Love it. So imagine that, again, there's hundreds of people trying to go from, from home to work at the same time, and everyone chooses to go on the highway. And so the highway is usually the best choice because there's no stoplights and it's a very wide road in the network. But when there's a lot of people on it, you get these kind of congestion properties of the, of the network. And so right. if everyone were to choose to go on the highway, then you could imagine that if there's enough people, things get congested. But still, there could be an outcome where everyone's on the highway, but if one person wants to get off the highway, it would actually take them longer than if they were to still choose the highway. Imagine that we have like the exact right number of people on the highway that that holds. That means that we're, we're currently in some kind of equilibrium. Yeah, exactly. Now imagine that instead of having that, what we did was we forced some fraction of the people on the highway to take a different route through the countryside, which took much, much longer, but it was enough people that we took off the highway that the highway now started moving fluidly without any congestion. Mm -hmm. In general, what we say is that there can be a multiplicity of equilibria or that in a given multi-agent system, there can be more than one Nash equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And so this, this actually goes against the common intuition in the design of multi-agent systems. So imagine we had robots now and we could program them. Sure. People's first guess or like the, what we call like the naive objective is to assign each of the agents the goal of the overall system. So imagine we had something like we wanted drones to survey a forest fire. Okay. A system designer on like day one would go to each drone and just program them to maximize the quality of observation across all drones. Everyone's a manager, basically. Exactly, yeah. Everyone, everyone's the, a leader, in, and there's no followers, right? Um, and in, cool. in this system, you actually do have a Nash equilibrium that is an optimum outcome. If you consider, right, if we reached an outcome that was the optimal, and everyone's objective is to maximize the global objective, then if anyone were to deviate, they would reduce the global objective. And so clearly, the global objective has to be an equilibrium in this outcome. The problem is that there's more than one equilibrium. So even though there is an optimal and that optimal is an equilibrium, it could be that the system actually converges to some suboptimal equilibrium out there in the decision-making space. When you say it could be that they, that they find this other equilibrium, is this something that like the programmer would actually put into the system? Or is this almost like an emergent phenomenon where like, I yeah. want all of these agents to be, the, uh, to be leaders, but then... It's like so, almost some kind of like artificial intelligence comes into being <laughs> where it, it quote unquote finds this new equilibrium. Like, yeah, yeah, this is kind of touching back on this idea of like consciousness. These drones aren't conscious. Right, right. How do we get to these multiple different kind of outcomes? Yeah, no, so, so the, the learning part in game theory is an active field as well. And so okay. I think like the simplest thing that you could consider is something that humans are very comfortable thinking about as well, which is if I'm presented with several options and I see a system outcome in front of me, then I just choose the the outcome that optimizes my local utility. So say like taking road A or road B, road A has a lower travel time, I just choose road A. And this is called like a best response strategy. But researchers have also looked at other approaches where agents will choose the best response with some probability and then some other response with a lower probability. And those are called sort of noisy best response strategies. Mm -hmm. But yeah, all of this sort of connects to this idea of consciousness. And this decision-making process is extremely simple. 
the, where the learning or like the, the consciousness comes in is in the macroscopic behavior of the system. All right, quick breather for just a second before we hop back into the episode. Just want to mention, this is the fifth of five episodes on decision-making so far. We've got episode two with Sean Devine, where we talk about cognitive effort in decision-making. We've got episode nine with Austin Trudeau, where we talk about decision-making in a consumer context. We've got Alexa Ruel on episode 53, where we talk about metacognition and decision-making across the lifespan. We've also got episode 62 with Tanya Singh, where we talk about choice deferral and deferral momentum. And then now we have episode 71, decision-making in multi-agent systems. So feel free to go back to episode 2, 9, 53, 62, or even just at the end of this episode, you can go back and re-listen to it again, episode 71. All right, back to the show. What's the role of information, new and old, in these multi-agent systems? Perfect question. Yeah, that's a perfect question. I mean, there's different levels of information and different levels of agents that you can also consider and how information impacts their decisions. So for example, for agents that are just the drivers on the network or drones that are observing a forest fire, for those agents, the level of information is basically dependent on how much communication they receive from the system. So for drones, what we like to say in like the engineering world is that the less communication you use, the more robust these systems are to failures between drones and, and whatnot. Interesting. And, okay. and more secure because, you know, People trying to hack a multi-agent system can't gain access to like their communication channels. So in the in that case, information is essentially how do drones observe other drones' actions. With drivers, it's it's a little bit different. I mean, one way that you gather information, and probably the most common way people gather information in a driving scenario is just by going on the roads more than once, right? So every day you're making your commute to work. Maybe you try something new, maybe you don't. And over time, you kind of get this like intuition on route A is on average faster. Or, like you generally, I prefer route A to route B. But a new paradigm has emerged in traffic routing because of these apps like Google Maps and Waze that kind of give people real-time information about the traffic and the travel time. And so now what we're seeing is people are actually able to act differently on a day-to-day -day basis, whereas before they would have just had this kind of route that they used every day. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, so Google, Google Maps and Waze are these external information systems that are constantly being updated that influence our decision-making process. Yeah. Perfect way to put it. Yeah. Fascinating. This whole time we've been talking about multi-agent systems, but I'm really curious to know what happens before we even get to the level of multi-agent systems. Like how do we study single agent systems? Yeah. So one thing that I'll just get off the bat is Multi-agent systems and game theory aren't kind of like synonymous, right? There's, okay. there's people that are studying multi-agent systems from various other research areas and fields. Like game theory is honestly one of the newer techniques used in multi-agent system okay. coordination. What um, are some of those other disciplines that are studying multi-agent systems? So now we're going to kind of get into like more kind of <laughs> abstract thinking. But okay. essentially, if you think of a multi-agent system as sort of a constrained single agent system. Imagine that the drivers on the road, instead of acting in their own self-interest, now acted according to like some dictator or maybe there was some app that just told you go on this road or else, right? Or else you're not allowed to go on the road, right? <laughs> sure, okay. In that case, you would truly have a single agent system, right? The single agent system would be the person making the decisions on where does Jeremy go? How is Rahul going to go from home to work today? How is the listener going to go from home to work today, 
that's a single agent system because there's one decision maker and extensions of the decision maker are all the actions that are being made in the system together. Whoa. Okay. So what you're doing is you're saying, even though there are many agents in a system, if there's only one agent that controls the whole thing, then we call that a single agent system. That would just be a single agent system because there's only one decision maker. So, so that's actually really confusing. It, it makes <laughs> yeah. sense. But, but yeah. if, if there was some like om- omnipotent being that controlled all of mine and yours and listeners and all the driver's behavior, yeah. the road network would be a single agent system because of that control. Exactly, yeah. By definition, it, there's only one decision maker and therefore it's, it's, there's a single agent. Even though its action space is so complex, right? Its action space includes the actions of each driver on the road, but it only has to make one decision. <sighs> wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. So give me the explanation of how, of how we take this system now that you're describing as single agent and then how do we make it multi-agent? Take the example that we had of the central coordinator making the choices for each of the drivers on the road. But now the coordinator has to make choices based on sort of satisfying some level of satisfaction to each of the drivers. So each of the drivers can't just be put on arbitrarily bad roads. You know, you can't just send everyone to the countryside and only allow some fraction to go on the highway. Everyone has to be happy with what they're being assigned. In that case, you start getting kind of a central coordination, which is aligned with distributed decision-making. Even though these choices are being made by a central coordinator, the emergent actions are actually aligned with kind of global happiness or satisfaction of the network. And so this sort of this transition from like a single agent making decisions just for the system welfare to a central decision-maker making decisions that make everyone happy. In that transition, if you end up at, a, at an action where everyone's happy, that has to be like a Nash equilibrium. And so you get to like this distributed decision-making. So this idea of distributed decision-making, you're, you're implying that like the system as a whole now is actually taking into account the individual characteristics of all the elements of it being drivers. Exactly, yeah. And that's a way of going from this central coordination to this distributed decision-making process. Yeah, making everybody happy makes things a lot more complicated. Exactly, you yeah. You care about people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The interesting thing, though, is that... This is all interesting so far. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, from going from a central coordinator to a distributed decision-making process, you'd imagine that you have some losses in performance, right? If I could just choose what everyone does, and they're forced to make that action based on what I chose, Mm -hmm. then you'd imagine that because I have all the information and I have full control over the system, I could actually lead the system to a better outcome than what would emerge out of like distributed decision-making in the first place. Right. If you were a benevolent God. (laughs) Yeah. If you, if you were, if you were doing things for the global system welfare, instead of some other possible reason. Uh The thing is that what what we found actually a lot of the time is that even though we were kind of forced to do distributed decision-making in a lot of these multi-agent systems, the performance guarantees that we can get actually are if not just close, they can actually be exactly the same as what you would get through a central coordination. So we, we've, we've gone over single agent systems, how they transform into multi-agent systems. All of this is in the context of game theory, which is this new application to multi-agent systems, which has already been studied from different perspectives. Your research specifically in a single sentence. Do you have a right. thesis title, by the way? I more or less do. It's, it's mechanism design for the coordination of multi-agent systems. 
So we've definitely been talking about that the whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure they're actually getting at the heart of your research. Right. You dropped a little hint in your introduction about something called the tragedy of the commons. Can you fill us in on what that is? Yeah. So, so the tragedy of the commons is sort of a term of the art in the economics literature, at least. It stemmed from this observation by this man named Hardin back in the 60s that in a lot of biological and social systems, so multi-agent systems composed of either animals or humans, that a lot of the times if you left things unregulated and uncoordinated between the different decision makers, the agents as we've been calling them so far, if you had a system with a limited number of resources, those resources would be consumed in a suboptimal way or in a way that is not aligned with the common good. What Hardin attributed this to was sort of self-interested decision-making, just like we've been talking about thus far. Essentially, this lays the groundwork for the study of what we now call game theory. What my kind of research and what the research of other folks in game theory has been, at least in recent years, is how do we design so-called mechanisms, so like tolling or policy, in order to limit this sort of a paradigm in these systems. To limit this like natural decay to disaster. Exactly, yeah. I'm sure you could think of things like the Easter Island example, where the human inhabitants of Easter Island completely deforested the island and then that led to their extinction. <laughs> or, I mean, in more recent cases, I mean, the stock market is, is a very good example or traffic and, and such. We, we see these kind of sort of things happen all, all around the place. And so that's where that's where you start getting these questions of, you know, what interventions should policymakers, government, what should they make in terms of decisions for the global good? It kind of reminds me of uh, this concept I learned about in, in philosophy, which is Hobbes's state of nature. Ah, yes, yes. Which I believe Hobbes was saying how without some like controlling power, our society will essentially just, just crumble yeah. and, and be completely chaotic. Hobbes is a classic like, pessimist <laughs> guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, I think in my high school philosophy class we compared him against uh, Rousseau, who was this extremely, extremely optimistic. He assumed that humans always emerge into these altruistic, civilized groupings, but Hobbes was definitely the more of the the capitalist mindset. Are you a Hobbesian or a <laughs> Rousseau? I think my research assumes the Hobbesian mindset. Uh -huh. If you look at the, the behavior of humans in any kind of system that emerges you do see sort of the self-interested decision-making occur. But I think it's it's a lot more nuanced than what we make it seem in, in game theory. I mean, there are people making decisions that are clearly for the global good simultaneously with others that are making decisions that are just in their self-interest. One thing to just remember, I mean, on that note, is that these things are just models and we're just trying to kind of observe and describe macro behavior that we've observed in systems. At times, we'll even claim that we can prescribe things so we can, you know, design the optimal mechanism, be it like a taxation mechanism or a policy decision. But more often than not, these models are far too simplistic to actually see the light of day in actual policy, unless you're talking about things like robots, where we can actually, you know, operate them in a very clean and structured environment. Mm -hmm. With human decision making, things are just, I mean, everything goes out the door. So. <laughs> are there people who are actually trying to model even small groups of multi-agent systems that are made up of human beings? Or is this like, is this so far off everybody's radar right now because it's just not doable yet? 
I mean, there is active research being done, and it's a very well-funded area of research in the application of game theory and trying to incorporate human decision makers into these systems. But often what, what people will do is they'll model a human as kind of like a rational decision maker with some noise. So like much noisier than a robot would act. Mm-hmm. And the, basically you're adding this noise because there's just unpredictability with what humans do. I mean, humans sometimes will act very emotionally, sometimes act very logically. I personally think that it's pretty difficult. And so I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but I think like applications of game theory are are better at kind of describing or kind of noting these loopholes or inadequacies of policy as opposed to something where you could, you know, design policy around. Mm-hmm. But to answer the second part of your question, I do know of work being done in Singapore and work being done on state side as well for designing tolling mechanisms on roads or designing kind of policy in structuring teams or hierarchies of teams. And what you'll see is if you get familiar with the research that it's just hard. So so to close off the episode today, I want to do something that I haven't done in a very long time. Okay. I want to bring back a segment called Explain Like I'm Five. And so I <laughs> okay. want you, Rahul, to just explain to me your research. So multi-agent <laughs> yeah. systems, study from a game theoretical perspective, as if I was five. I will right. call you out if you fail to adhere to this rule. <laughs> you may begin. Okay, so let's say let's say we're at a birthday party and we want to split a cake between everyone at the birthday party, sure. right? So everyone should get their fair share of the cake. Okay. If we allowed everyone to choose the slice of cake that they wanted, they would take a much bigger slice than they should be allowed because there's too many people at the party. Okay. Right? Yeah. So obviously everyone wants a bigger slice of the cake, but let's say there's 12 people at the party, so we have to cut the cake into 12 equal portions. So imagine now that everyone could choose their slice of the cake. If some, you know, birthday girl goes first or birthday boy and takes a slice, they take a quarter of the cake. So there's only three quarters of the cake left for the 11 other attendees at the birthday party. Ah, yes. So now we have the attendees at my birthday party. All of my (laughs) five-year-old friends. (laughs) Yeah. And so what ends up happening is by the time it gets to the 12th kid at the party, the cake slice they get is just, you know, a sliver of a cake Uh slice, you know. And so obviously the girl that got that last piece of cake is unhappy because, you know, birthday girl got a quarter of the cake and she got maybe like a 24th of the cake or something, right? So what should we do? Should we allow like the parents to distribute the cake for the kids? In that case, like a parent would cut this this cake into 12 equal portions, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, we're assuming the parent doesn't want fights to break out. So they cut the cake into exactly 12 perfectly symmetrical slices, right? Right. So that's complete fairness. It's, it's, yeah. uh, that is, that is equality. Yeah. And so that would be kind of like the single agent decision making there. That would be central coordinator gets to dictate what everyone gets. Okay. Right? So yeah, we just popped out of the, the five-year-old terminology there. Great. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Great job. Yeah, Great yeah. example with the cake. Love it. I exactly. just, just in case at some point my, my, my zero to 10 age range demographic increases, <laughs> I want to make sure that there's content out there yeah, for yeah. them. No, yeah, uh, yeah. I, like just to continue with this five, like this explain like I'm five thing, right? Sure. The problem though is in some systems, maybe there's no parents at the party, right? Now the, the birthday girl is going to choose the slices. How do you get the birthday girl to slice the cake so that everyone gets an equal portion, right? And so that's where my research comes in is do we promise 
that if she cuts the cake into more equal slices, that she gets some other reward. Maybe the person who gets the biggest slice gets the least amount of pizza or like, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't get some presents or something like that. So the idea is there's many kids at the party who want cake. How do we make emergent behavior in that system lead to egalitarianism or at least some level of, of happiness, right? I think that's a great question to leave the listeners with. Yeah. Next time they're at a yeah. birthday party with five-year-olds or their contemporaries, they should sit down before anybody eats or touches anything and decide what's going to happen and just work exactly. fairly yeah. and figure out how they can optimize that multi-agent system for themselves. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. There's this like well-studied problem of like how to split this cake. This is actually like a game theory problem. Okay. So if you wanted two people to split a cake evenly and you assume that everyone wants the most cake, right? Yeah. Say like there's like Alice and Bob, right? So you get Alice to cut the cake and then Bob gets to choose the slice. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? So Alice yeah. has to cut the cake in such a way that at the end of the day, she gets a slice that Bob didn't want. And so she's going to cut it equally, right? So then things get start getting a lot more complicated as soon as you add a third like Alice, Bob, and Charlie, right? Uh -huh. If there's a Charlie as well, the mechanism is not like known. It's uh, it's still open. Another question to think about. If you're at a yeah. party with only two people and <laughs> one giant cake, you're all going to be very full. That, that, is, that is one certainty of the system, regardless. Right. Thank you for, for finishing off on a sweet note. Much appreciated. <laughs> but thank you for dropping all of this knowledge on us. And for sure. I will be putting some links to further readings in the show notes. So for the listeners, Thanks. feel free to check those out. Thank you so much, Rahul. It was great to have you. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy and all listeners. It was, this was really fun. Excellent. So have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy. Take it easy.